So will you guys please do me a favor and help welcome and honor our lead pastor, Rick Bizet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, it's a good God. Give the Lord a hand. I know that's the reason why you're here. Right. Turn to the person next to you. Don't sit down. Keep standing. Turn to the person next to you and say, you look good for a change. Tell them that. Finally, you look good. Now turn to the other person and say, why didn't you tell me first? Come on. And then high five them and tell them to sit down and shut up. Listen, the hand of God is on this church. The early church, the Bible says that the early church uh, was added upon, like God added to that church daily those who were being saved. And it was because the hand of God was on that church. And, uh, and fortunately, in the Cabot area, I find that there's a lot of churches that the hand of God is on the church. This is not the only one. If for some reason you come here and you connect with this church, but you don't feel like it's your home, then I encourage you to find a home because everybody needs a church. Can I have an amen on that? And there's a lot of them in this community. If you happen to come to this church, uh, you're going to be led by people who I think are some of the best leaders I know, James and Cody. And I want to tell you, I would let them pastor me. If it wasn't so far to drive from Conway, I'd probably be up in here myself. And I appreciate the way they preach, the way they lead, the way the worship. When you guys get to heaven, you're going to want to come back here on the weekends. Isn't that right? And would you give the worship team a hand? I mean, gosh, that's just amazing. That's just amazing. So I have a few friends that are here. I've got Dr. Witt uh, Napple, and I've got the Fletchers that are here. These are people that are my friends and the Adcocks. Would you give them a hand? Come on. They came in from Conway and GLR. And uh, I want to talk to you about something that I find uh, that is very, very important. Uh, James already alluded to the fact that he asked for me to speak on this topic, and, and, uh, and I have it. Every grand opening we've ever had, that's what I've been able to do. And uh, it's been several times, but it's really my testimony, but it's not about me. It's not about something I've done right. In fact, this story, this, this sermon, it's going to be about a lot of mistakes that I've made. Uh, because we've all made mistakes. Raise your hand if you ever made any mistakes. Raise your hand if you have any issues. If you don't think you have any issues, that's your issue right there. How many of you have ever lied before, big time? If you didn't raise your hand, you're lying now. And this is church. God's going to kill you right here in this place. How many of you procrastinate way too much? Uh-huh. The real procrastinators will raise their hand in a little bit, just like those late, you know. And uh, so we've all, we've all blown it. I get that. But there's a major tendency, I don't know if you know the word that well, but I want to speak to you about theology just for a second. There's a major tendency, this is how a lot of people pray, and it seems biblical, and it seems smooth, and it seems righteous. Here's here's the way a lot of people pray. I mean good people who love God. They'll pray this way. They'll say, Lord, do something in my life. Lord, please Just do something in my life. But I want to challenge that because here's the truth. He's done it already. And it's your move. It's your move. It's kind of easy to say, God, do something in my life, but it's your move. And the reason why a lot of us do not make moves is because we've made mistakes 
and then we pivot away from making a move. I get that, because my story is, I grew up in a church that was nothing like this church. It wasn't life-giving. It wasn't like a lot of the churches that are, that are now in Arkansas. As I travel around, a lot of churches are getting this right. Uh, and it was the type of church where everybody there was legalistic. They were judgmental. Like it, like it was a prerequisite to go to that church for you to be mean and hate people. That was the church I went to. And the meanest person there was Miss Hodges was her name. And she was, she was my Sunday school teacher and she hated her class. We were eight years old and she hated her class. And the one that she hated the most in the class was me. And her finger was 30 foot long. And she, that was the dimensions of the class. And she would point at me. She talked like a man who smoked a lot. And she said, hell, hell is hot. And she, her feet, she'd point right at you. And she said, Bizet, that's my last name. You're going to hell and hell is hot. She said, don't you want to go to heaven? Not if you're going to be there. <laughs> and so that really interrupted the relationship. But here's, here's the truth. It's kind of funny a little bit now. <laughs> but man, at the time, I thought God hated me. I never once remember thinking that God wanted me in to do anything for him. I always thought he wanted me out. Even as a little kid, I remember in junior high, I had this pain in my side, and I thought it must be cancer. God hates me so much, I bet. I was just, I was messed up in my thinking. My mom and dad, when I was in junior high, uh, they went through a a, a really major separation. And I remember thinking, it's my fault. And I was always trying to go to the altar just to try to get something going because I really thought God hated me. I thought he could not wait until I was not even in attendance in that church. So what that does for me is not necessarily great. Still to this day, I struggle with it. Still to this day, when I was backstage and, and he was introducing me and, and, and I was just thinking, man, I just, just not... All of you, for whatever reason, you're going to think you shouldn't make a move, that you're not worthy to make a move, and that it's too late for you, and you have blown it. And I understand, but that cycle is a lie. And God does want to use you, and he does have a plan for your life. And I promise you, it's always worth it. Some of you are going to heaven, but you're not enjoying the trip, and it's because you're not willing to make a move. Now, we've all made mistakes. Let me, let me tell you about a mistake that my wife made because I'm more comfortable talking about her mistake. It's Michelle. Would Michelle stand up? This girl is pretty. I love my baby girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she kisses good too. I'll tell you that right now. But when we moved here, we have four kids and we didn't want to move here because we were afraid to move here. We only knew a family. And, and then we moved here and then we met another family one day and then another family. And we were scared to move here. It was intimidating. We almost didn't come. That's the true story. Uh, But when we moved here, we started our first service in a city called Conway and uh, our first church. And and my son, who was around, uh, gosh, I guess six years of age or so, he was going around telling everybody that he was the pastor's son because he was leveraging that for extra cookies and kids ministry. So they were giving out animal crackers and he would say, well, I'm the pastor's son. Can I have another one? Well, my wife is like Cody. She's not going to put up with that. So she went over to him. She goes, Tanner, are you going around telling everybody that you're the pastor's son for extra cookies? And he said, yes, ma'am. And it's working good. I got five last week. And she said, that's not how we roll. 
You don't go around telling everybody you're the pastor's son. You just go around and tell them you're Tanner. That's your name. You just tell them you're Tanner. He said, yes, ma'am. So the next weekend, a lady went up to him and said, aren't you the pastor's son? He had a dilemma. Now, remember, when you go to plant a church, you want to have a good reputation, right? Aren't you the pastor's son? He said, well, I thought I was, but my mom said I'm not. So that's what happened there. So we didn't grow much that first year. Uh, a lot of issues. But here's what I've learned. Some of you, you're not enjoying your relationship with the Lord right now. And in fact, your tank is empty. Some of you, you live your life the way you drive a car. So how many of you, when your car gets to a half a tank, you go and you get fuel in it because you're wired, you're OCD, and you just have to. How many of those? The real systems people. We're always, we're always jealous of these people. We, we don't like you. And uh, Okay, but how many of you, you're more like a quarter of a tank people? Just normal people, all the B-flat people, normal. Okay, how many of you, though, you wait until, you wait. Come on now. You wait. Wait. Don't raise your hand yet. I hadn't even. You wait until the tank is empty. And then, wait, don't put your hand up yet. And then the light comes on, and you know how many miles past that before you're going to get fuel, and then you wait two more miles past that. That's you. (laughs) Frank Fletcher. I've seen some of you on the side of the road. Hey, but when you run out of fuel, it seems like everybody else, you're just sitting on the side of the road, you feel stupid. It's like everybody's driving faster than ever before. It's like no one cares about you, and you're just sitting there. Some of you, this is the way you do, you do life spiritually. Like you've been on the side of the road for a long time, and, and, and the Lord wants to fill you back up with his spirit again. Can I have an amen on that? And, and so I want to talk to you about this topic that a lot of people do not get unless you look at it honestly. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, let's break down this scripture. It says, therefore, brothers, now this is talking to everybody, but therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. With a sincere heart, we're gonna we're gonna make a we're gonna make some we're gonna make some points there. We're gonna talk about sincerity and full assurance of faith, and having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Everybody say hope. We profess for He who promises faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. All right, we're going to hit this hard, uh, and I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to have you listen quickly to set this up. How, how many of you you have raised a kid or two in your life? At least one, or you're raising a kid right now. If you ever raise kids, there are times, and I've noticed this, there are times where you say something to one of your kids that's not that important, but it's kind of a tip of the day. Like, hey, uh, don't run through the living room. Or, hey, close the door on your way out. 
Or, hey, don't forget to bring home your shoes. My kids always left their shoes. Don't forget, okay? But there were other times where you had to tell them something that's, that was safe. Like they had to know it. So you'd call them over and you'd get your hand on their face. You ever do this? Like, what I'm about to tell you, better listen to me. Do you want me to do to you what I do to your brother? I don't have a brother. See? You want me to do that? And that's kind of the talk. Well, the reason why you're doing that is because you know what you're about to tell them could save their life. And, and this is the reason why there are reoccurring perpetual topics in the word that you have to get these fundamentals right. Here's the first one. It's your move to have confidence in your approach to God. Confidence in your approach to God. Okay, if I were to pull you into my office, and, and I, I love pastoring, like James and Cody, they, they do this all the time. They, they're with people. And uh, so James would certainly know that I'm right about this. If I pulled you into my office and I got to know you, and are you, let's say you were at my home, or we went on vacation together. And then I was to say to you, I say, hey, do you love God? Yeah, I love God. I believe most of you would say that. Then I would even say, okay, let's take it a step further. Does the Lord love you? Yeah, he loves me. But if you were to get honest with me, like take out your heart, this is where most of you would land. Most of you would say, he loves me, but there's a few things that I've done in my life, and I don't know if I can be forgiven for those things. Like a few things and that you just hold on to, and it causes you to keep from making moves. Like, like you just have so much regret, you don't want anybody to bring it up if anyone knows about it. If it's still a secret, you don't want to think about it. It's, it's those things. So most would say, yeah, the Lord loves me, but there's one or two things, and I don't know if he can forgive me for those. But here's the, biblically speaking, it's almost like you're saying, Lord, I appreciate what you did on the cross. It's amazing. I love the cross, but, but you didn't do enough. It, it just, what, your blood was not enough because you're, you're basically saying that he can't forgive everything. And, and, and the Bible says that's like crucifying him all over again. And when you live your life, you, you, you live behind you instead of in front of you, you'll tend to think, the Lord can't do anything in my life. There's no, there's no way he's going to give me a chance. And then you live at a distance with God. And this is where you become calloused. And this is where you're no longer enjoying your walk. Why do you think God speaks in a whisper? In the Old Testament, he spoke in a whisper. It wasn't in the thunder or the wind and the earthquake and the fire. It was in the whisper. Often the Holy Spirit is described as a voice, as a still, small voice. Why does he talk so softly? Because you have to be in close proximity to hear a whisper. And you're never going to get close to God if you believe the lie of my Sunday school teacher. That you're not enough and he doesn't want you around. That he just wants you out and he doesn't want you in. Think about the heroes of the faith, if you will, just for a second. I mean, think about Jonah. He was asked to do something by God, but he ran in the exact opposite direction from where God... Some of you, that's where you are. You know where the Lord wants you to go and you're in the exact opposite direction. Because you don't feel ready or you're angry about the idea... What about Noah? He was, yes, he built an incredible boat, but he was also the father of all drunks. What about Abraham? God said he was going to have a lot of kids, and year after year it didn't happen, and he made a monumental mess idea in the middle of it all, but we're not going to talk about that today. But then, but then he came back, and in that 100 years old, the Lord showed up and said, hey, 
it's time, go to Babies or Us, you're going to have some kids. That's nasty, 100 years old, that's nasty, all right? What, what, about, what about these people in the Bible like Isaac? He was a daydreamer. And what about people like Jacob? He, he was a liar. God said, I want to use you. But he was a liar. He said, I can't use you until you tell me the truth. And one day he got honest and he said, okay, God, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a deceiver. I've always been that way. And then the Lord finally said, thank you for giving me something to work with. Thank you very much. And then he moved in his life. What, what about these other people like Moses? Moses was the one who carried down the Ten Commandments. But don't you think he read them? Yes, go like this. One of them said, thou shalt not commit murder. And Moses was a murderer. He killed an Egyptian with a knife. And you know when he saw that, it was like, man, I'm not good enough. But he still carried them down. If it would have been me, I'd have carried them down and said, here are the Nine Commandments right here. I would have left that out. What about Rahab? She was a prostitute. How about Samson? He liked prostitutes. How about David, the man after God's own heart? He was an adulterer and covered it with murder. What about Elijah? One day he's calling down fire from heaven. And the very next chapter he's suicidal under a tree asking God to kill him because he's so discouraged about the mistake that he made. What about Isaiah? He preached naked for three years. That is also nasty. What about John the Baptist? That dude was eating bugs every day. You know, he was messed up. Jeremiah, he was so emotional. He probably took bubble baths listening to Michael Buble while on Pinterest. I know that's the truth. What about Peter, even denied even knowing Christ? And Zacchaeus, too small. Paul, too religious. Listen, we can come up with a thousand excuses, but you are never going to make a move to the will of God if you think the cross is not enough. After Jesus rose from the dead, there was two people that made a major mistake, Peter and Judas. Jesus told these ladies, he said, hey, go get the disciples, I want to talk to them. And, and then he says, in it all, so encouraging, he said, get the disciples, and then as they're moving on, he goes, and don't forget Peter. Why did he have to say that? Because Peter didn't consider himself qualified to be a disciple anymore because he had denied the Lord three times. And I'm convinced that if Judas would have not committed suicide, that Jesus would have rose from the dead and he'd have told the ladies, hey, go get those boys, go get the disciples, and don't forget Peter, and please get my boy Judas. Because the Lord is good at redeeming relationships and bringing people back into the fold. Can I have an amen on that? Okay, number two, it's your mood to not be afraid. By the way, in this first relationship, this woman... Uh, who was caught in adultery. We talked about this some last week. She was thrown at the feet of Jesus, and the religious people wanted to kill her. Okay, Jesus and the religious people wanted the same thing to happen to the woman caught in adultery. The religious people wanted her to sin no more, and so did Jesus. Wanted her to sin no more. But the way the religious people wanted to do it was to kill her. The way that Jesus wanted to do it was to forgive her. So she's thrown, probably half-dressed in the presence of all these religious leaders in Jesus. And, the, and they, it was entrapment. And they said, we got we to gotta stone her. This is what we talked about last week. We got to kill her. And, and they looked at Jesus. Isn't that right? We got to kill her. And Jesus, he's so smooth. How many love Jesus up in here? And Jesus looked at him. And he said, you're right. We got to kill her. He said, but let's do it this way. Let's let one of you who's without any sin throw the first rock. And, and they're all looking like, oh, man. And then he writes in the ground twice. 
We don't know what he wrote, but we all really want to know, right? And he wrote, Billy Graham said it's the only sermon Jesus ever wrote. And he's writing probably sins in their life, and they're like, what? So they dropped the rocks and they ran because religion never goes to Christ. It always goes to hide. And all of a sudden, the woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus looked at her. He said, where are those that condemn you now? And she looks at him and she said, well, they're not here now. And he said, and neither do I condemn you. Now, here's the key. It's not just about grace. It's not sloppy agape. There's a fear of God in our relationship. And he looked at her and he said, now, he goes, I forgive you, neither do I condemn you. Now you get up and you go, ma'am, and you sin no more. Now, it's huge for you to know that there's no chance that woman went back into adultery. There's no way she ran back into that because nothing can compete with looking at the Lord, like being up close, hearing the whisper of his forgiveness. There's no way she just ran back into adultery because nothing can compete with being forgiven. Nothing. If he would have looked at her and he'd have said, you lucky, look at you trashy self. You, you, you're a waste of time. I just saved your life. You lucky, you, do, you, you need to be praised my name. Now get out of here and sin no more. She would have went right back into sin. And some of you, the way you're framed in your life, you see it like a trashy person who's lucky they have been forgiven instead of understanding that he traded places with you to be in relationship with you. Can I have an amen? Number two, it's your move to not be afraid. Your move not to not be afraid. Hebrews chapter 10 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises faithful. Everybody say hope. All right, here's a survey. How many of you someday after you die, I'm not asking you to vote if you want to die right now, but after you die, you want to go to heaven someday. Come on. Look, you want to be seen on this one, all right? Okay. Because we're all going to die. I, even if you're a health nut, like some of you people usually, well, like my wife, what? I say, the difference between you and I, Michelle, is you're going to die with a nasty taste in your mouth. I, but I'm going with Reese's peanut butter cups. Bam. <laughs> Cheeseburgers right up in here. So, so, when you die, though, and you get to heaven, and you're looking around, I want you to get this. There'll be no faith in heaven. Zero. Everything we spend now, to, for you even to believe the word that I just read, it takes faith to believe it. But in heaven, there'll be zero. You'll see. Faith is when you cannot see. You will see. You will see the power of his name. You, you will sense the power of his spirit. You will see how huge and big he is and the enormity and the sound and the work. And when you're there in heaven and spending this eternity with him, there's a strange verse in the Bible that says he's going to wipe away tears. Why? I don't know the answer to that, but I've always thought maybe the tear that he's going to wipe away will be the tear that after we see how big he is, maybe we'll think back to now and go, why didn't I live my life? Knowing he was this big. If I would have known on earth that God was this big and this powerful and that, 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 that he was the, the enormity and the, the majestic side of his name, I would have lived differently. I would have gone for it more. I wouldn't have hesitated. I would, I would have been willing to give it all for him in my time, in my finances, 
in my prayer. I would have not been afraid. Do you know how many of you have a job right now that you literally hate because the one that you should do, you're too afraid to go and do it. You're just too afraid. You've forgotten somehow how big he is. Do you know how many people have lost a relationship along the way? And a phone call could restore the relationship, but you're too afraid to make the call because what if it doesn't work? Do you know how many young people choose a major in college that they hate because the one they should do, they're too afraid to do it? Because they don't see how big God is. Pastors are notorious for this. We start out with a huge dream and we're in Bible school and then through the years we just lower it to wherever our confidence is. It's a discouraging place to live. It's around a lot of fear. Uh, one day, Jesus went to this blind man. He said, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And this, everybody had to know he wanted to see. His name was Blind Bartimaeus. Everybody knew it. But Jesus went over to him and said, what do you want me to do for you? Why would Jesus ask a blind man that? I think it's easy to answer that one. Because Jesus loves to hear what you're dreaming about. And some of you haven't articulated a dream to him in years because you have forgotten that he wants you to make a move towards that dream. Joseph was a dreamer and his brother saw him and they elbowed each other and they go, look, the dreamer is coming. And as he's walking, you can tell in a family who's in the house, who's in that sphere of influence, who has a dream. And you can tell who's put down the dream. It's hard to be friends with someone who's lost their dream, to be married to someone who's lost their dream. It's hard to be under a boss that no longer has a dream. It's hard to be an employee of someone who's lost their dream. Jesus one time uh, told the disciples, he goes, hey, hey boys, uh, let's get in the boat. And, and this is what he told them. It's very important you understand this part. He said, you get, get in the boat, and then when you get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side. See the other side? The Sea of Galilee, you can see the other side. He said, get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side. So they start going to the other side. About midway, this storm, because storms happen, started hitting up against the boat and hitting them and knocking them around, and it was like freaking out. In the Greek, it literally means they were freaking out. And they looked over at Jesus, and he was sleeping. What? And the Bible says that they went over to him. This is very important. They went over to him, and they shook him. And this is what they said. Because if you live around fear without knowing how huge he is and how much he wants to be in your home, this is what you're going to do. They shook him, and they said, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to die. Don't you even care? Don't you care? They all forgot that Jesus said, we're going to the other side. If he said we're going to the other side, you are going to the other side. Don't you care? And Jesus stood up and he looked at the storm and he said, peace be still. Immediately the storm, the winds and the wave all subsided. Like it went from chaos, loud, to all of a sudden, no sound. Can you, can you say awkward? And then Jesus looked at them and he said, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And I think that's what he's saying to us right now. Like, why are you so afraid? Let's get in the game. Why are you living your life without the end in mind, without eternity in mind? Why are you so afraid? Number three, it's your move to be sincere in your approach to God. That verse I read earlier, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Sincere heart. Everybody look at me and track me. You can't leave this place anyway. It's raining too hard to get out. 
You're not going to be able to relate to this side of my story, but you gotta, you're going to have to filter it through your own life. When I was in Bible school, they literally taught, they did this for years and they still do it to this day. They taught us as people in Bible school that you cannot be too close to people. This is the way they taught it. So you can't, you're the anointed one. Touch not the anointing. You're the one that has to pray through. It's just you and God. Ministry is lonely. You can't have any friends. They taught us protocol back in the day. They don't do this now, but the protocol that you sit in a chair on the stage, like away from the people, you're the anointed one. You just, you just battle it out, you and God. So I would raise my hand in Bible school and say, I can't have any friends. No, ministry is lonely. I remember thinking, I'm going to hate this. So I believed it. I just took their word for it. Graduated from Bible school, got married, and went into the ministry in the same month in 1988. Well, Michelle and I started out ministry. Well, our first year of marriage, it wasn't good. It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't good at all. We're arguing and fighting. And you know that Bible verse that says, don't go to bed with anger in your heart? We were staying up for like 10 to 12 days at a time. So I remember it was just fighting and fighting. So we would walk in. Here's the truth. We would walk into a Bible study, like go to someone's home, and they would invite us over. And then we, as soon as we were fighting that whole day. But when we walked in, we, I put my arm around her, and we put the face on. And, and, and we walked in. And after we left, people would look at us and go, Man, Rick, I wish I had a marriage like you. And I'm going, no, no, no. <laughs> and and uh, this is kind of kind of my, my, my deal. Then one day, no one in the world knew that we were struggling. I'm going to tell you, that's a horrible way for you to live your Christian life. The Bible says you confess your sins to God, he'll forgive you. But it also says you confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. A lot of forgiven people are very sick. So here we were, Michelle and I were having troubles at home, and my pastor said, I want you to preach this coming weekend. It was like five days away, and to get a sermon together. Well, this is a huge church. I'd never preached to a large church, thousands of people. I, I, I didn't even know what to do. So I was in my office. I was under pressure. I had to go get something out of the fridge. I walked by Michelle. Michelle is there, and, and, uh, and, and she said something, and it made me mad. And I said, Michelle, just shut up, except I said it really loud. Michelle, just shut up. I'm sick of you. I'm trying to put together a sermon. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And, 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 and I just shut up. So I just kept walking and came back, and she was crying. I said, well, I'll deal with it later. And I went into my office, and I felt the conviction of God. I can remember it really well. And when I was in there, I said, Lord, will you forgive me? And I sensed the Lord saying, yeah, I'll forgive you, but you got to go settle this with your wife, which meant I had to tell her I was wrong, and that's hard for me to do. So I went in, and she, I'll never forget her bottom lip was quivering, and I just kind of, I didn't know how, to, I was just like, like <laughs> I just said, uh, so I said, I'm sorry, it was a very, it was just not the right way to do it, but I said, I'm sorry, and she, she looked up at me, this girl's smart, she said, who are you? I just need to know who you are. I'm with you for the rest of our lives, but I got to know who you are. Are you, are you the guy, are you being real when you yell at me in the house? Or are you being real when you preach? Like when we go to a small group and you have your arm around me, is that when you're real? 
Were you being real when we go on a date? Like when you ask me to marry you, is that who you are or is this who you really are? I just need to know who you are. And I'm looking at her like, baby, I don't even know. So we made up. And then we made out, first year of marriage, and then we made out again. Come on, don't look at me like you're so holy. We was made out. And then, then I went into my office, and this is where it gets weird, and I don't recommend this, but it's my story, and so I can't make up stories, so I have to tell you what happened. I'm in my office, and the Lord showed me. He said, I forgive you, and so does your wife. But when you speak to the church this weekend, remember that big church? I want you to tell everyone what you said to your wife in the living room. She's like, what? Like, tell the whole church? I told Michelle to shut up? Yeah, the whole church. God, I can't do that. I'm a man of God. They, they taught me in Bible school, you never do that. Remember to touch not the anointing thing? God, I can't do that. I can't be honest. God, you need to go to Bible school. They'll clear that up. They go, they cover that material right away. And so I decided not to do it. And the sermon was going south. And finally, in the sermon, I looked at everybody and I told everyone what I just told you. And I asked them to forgive me. And I looked at Michelle and she was on the front row and her mouth was like wide open. <laughs> and I said, baby, will you forgive me? And Okay, I thought it was over for me then. I don't know why. I don't know if I got that from my Sunday school teacher. I don't know if I got it in Bible school, but I thought it was over for me. But when I said that, it's like the Lord put his arms around me. It's like he said, this is my boy. Thank you for giving me something to work with. I'm looking for people to be real with me. I can't do it the other way with them. That's why in the early church they, they were glad and they broke bread and they met in homes and they were sincere, like people really knew what was up. And this is the same way if that's the early church, that's his original intent. That's the way he still wants to do it and this all leads me to the last point. And then I'm out of here. It's your mood to encourage others to follow after Christ. To follow after Christ, okay? I just need a few more minutes and then we're done here. Listen, it's hard to win someone to Christ. Raise your hand if you would admit sometimes it's hard to lead someone to Christ. Come on, would you admit it? All right, thank you for being honest about that. When I moved to Arkansas, I could sense like a religious spirit on this state. In every culture that I would go in, I could sense that a lot of people, instead of wanting people to Christ, they would just see their sin and then judge them, just gossip about them. Instead of walking over and talking to them, eating dinner with them, Inviting them to their home, they just said, look at what they're doing. Look at how they are. There's just no fruit in that. So when I came here, I remember one day I told them the story, and then I'm done. My, my daughter, who's strong-willed, she's so strong-willed. I hope you never have to raise a kid with a strong will. But she's so strong-willed. When, when she was four years old, she saw a Hallmark movie of a girl running away from home. And she, at four years of age, framed it this way. She said, I want to run away from home. That just looks like a blast. But I don't want to wait till I'm a teenager. I want to do it now. I can't do it now because my parents are always holding my hand and like paying attention. Except at night when they're sleeping. When they're sleeping, I can do it then. But I don't want to go alone. I like people. So I'm going to bring my two-year-old brother with me. 
So she told, talked him into it. They packed a wagon without us knowing with his diapers and her dolls and Skittles and stuff like that. And so in the middle of the night, this is all planned. We're sleeping. In the middle of the night, like 1 or 2 in the morning, she woke up ready to go. Like her will, her, she didn't know how to work an alarm clock. It was her will that woke her up. Like, boom, it's time. <laughs> and she walked in there to, to her brother and said, come on, let's go. I got the wagon. This is going to be so much fun. He goes, I'm too sleepy. Go without me. She said, loser, left him there, went down. We're sleeping. She grabbed the wagon. We didn't know about it. She walked away from the house, away from the cul-de-sac to the end of that road. We're asleep. She took a right, then another right, then a left, all the way out of the subdivision in her nightgown and a wagon. We're sleeping. She got to a four-lane highway like where cars drive. She took a left on that road and walked all the way to a school in front of a school and we're sleeping and a lady saw her and pulled over and said, young lady, what are you doing? She said, I'm running away from home. This is just so much fun. She was like tasting freedom, you know? And the lady said, young lady, I think you need to get in the car. I'm going to take you home. No, ma'am, I'm not allowed to ride in a car with strangers. But your family allows you to walk freely out here by yourself? So they had to piece that together. And then Haley decided to come home, so this lady followed her in her car. I don't know how long this would have taken to get all the way back to our house. In the middle of the night, there was a knock on the door. Like, just be asleep. Michelle, did you hear that? No, I wasn't even here. A little while later, Michelle, somebody's at the door. Go see what it is. No. <laughs> so I went down, she followed me, and I got to the door, and we didn't have one of those peepholes to look through, so I just said, who is it? She's like, I'm so-and-so, and I have your daughter. No, you don't have my daughter. My daughter's sleeping upstairs. No, I think I have your daughter. No, you don't. Who is this? You don't have my daughter. Who is this? I have your daughter. No, you don't. And I heard my daughter, Dad, it's Haley. Open the door. It's like, chick, chick. <laughs> she's there with this lady. He's like, what is going on? And they told me everything that you now know. And I just looked at my daughter and the lady, and I started getting crazy. And Michelle's pinching me like, settle down, settle down. Remember that? Settle down, settle down. So I went over and thanked the ladies. Thank you. And I started giving her stuff, like my cars. And then we went inside and we stared at Haley. Okay, that's the end of the story. But let me tell you what relates to you as a church. I'm very proud of what's happened in here. But I just want you to know that if I still lived in that cul-de-sac in Zachary, Louisiana, I would still have my phone set up, the one that hooks to the wall. Remember that? And every time the phone would ring, I would run so fast to that phone, I would die. And I wouldn't say hello. I would say, Haley. Like if she would have never come home, I would still live there. I, I, would, I would still, I would pick my friends based on who was helping me find my daughter. And thus you have the church. And for way too long, we just let people slip. We've let them go. And we just, we haven't seen the value of a soul. And Jesus said this, before he left, he said, I ask you to stop saying in four months or at some point, and then we'll go and get the harvest. 
but for you to lift up your eyes right now and see the harvest is ripe. They are sheep without a shepherd and they need you to get them now. The vision of this church is to win this city. That's the vision of other churches in this city. And you will never understand what Christianity is really all about until you have a lost person here with you, broken down, hurting. And when you see them, find Christ, give their heart to the Lord, get discipled, get in the leadership track. There are pastors that are going to help us plant other churches that you're going to bring here. Right now, they're totally lost. They're away from the Lord, but you're going to bring them here and they're going to find Christ because that is what the Lord of the harvest is asking for the church to do. It's your move. Yes, he can do some things, but it's your move. And he's looking for someone that says, here I am, oh God, send me. Let's bow our heads, no one looking around. I love the hand of God on this church. I love the, the humility, the, the Christ-likeness. Listen, guys, this is a church. There's nothing more important in the world happening than what Christ is doing in church. It's his bride. And I just want to encourage you to remember, he's in, he, he wants you here to be a part. Spirit of God, we welcome you into our lives and we don't want to move through life without being a person who yields to you that says, yes, sir. Lord, we will make our move. Give us confidence. Give us sincerity. Give us souls. And from this day on, we're going to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on, let's all stand up and worship God together. Let's stand.